Hey lunatics, you're listening to Let the Meat Grass, a podcast exploring real food, broken ecosystems, and a better way to live. I'm Austin Williams, your farmer and podcast host. Before I began farming, I was a public school teacher who had grown up in the suburbs of St. Louis. And if you were like me, you had no idea what was real or who to trust when it came to our food. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a chance you've begun to doubt what huge food corporations are trying to sell you is as healthy as it's cracked up to be. And for good reason. I'm dedicating this show to you, the lunatics, the crazies, who have chosen to opt out, to stray beyond the safe and familiar confines of grocery store walls to support a farmer. And not just any farmer, but a farmer whose mission is to heal the land and nourish the people. You see, conventional farms are dying. We've been losing farmers for well over a century now. When 100% of us eat and only 1% of us farm, we have a math problem. Help me do the math by sticking around, listening closely, and voting with your forks to support real food. See you soon. Hey, before I start out on the episode, I want you to know something. I've been working hard the last three weeks on building extra content on Patreon. I need your support to keep doing this. Whether it's $1 or $5 or more per month, anything helps. The best part is if you support me, then you'll unlock cool content from the farm, videos and all. If this podcast means anything to you and you want me to keep producing it, if it adds value to your life, please add value to mine. Your support ensures I can sustainably produce it. Thank you. Now, on with the show. Ever been to a national park? If you haven't, let me be your guide. It all started in 1872 when the U.S. declared areas of Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho to be set aside from general use to be preserved for future generations. That year, Yellowstone National Park was born. The concept of public land was completely foreign even to the popular imagination of the time. The closest land designation to a national park prior to Yellowstone was probably about the 12th to 16th century royal forests of Norman kings in what we know today as Great Britain. These kings would protect the vegetation and animals to ensure good hunting for the aristocracy. Commoners who killed these protected animals like deer, boar, hare, and wolf were subject to escalating punishments, culminating in death for the most severe. Now, in Great Britain, the royal forests weren't about stewardship for stewardship's sake. The forests were protected for sure, but it was more about guarding resources in case the king wanted to use them. It was different in the U.S. Here, in 1872, this land was not set aside for any king. It was set aside, quote, for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. Those words are literally carved into something called the Roosevelt Arch, which was erected in 1903, and it actually used to be a visitor entrance into Yellowstone National Park. The responsibility of stewarding the park almost accidentally fell to the federal government. At the time, Wyoming, which is where the majority of the park is located, was a territory. And here in the U.S., territories are a step below full statehood. 
Without a full jurisdictional government, Wyoming didn't have the necessary resources to steward a colossal 3,500-square-mile park. That's a little more than two states of Delaware. So almost by default, the responsibility of stewarding Yellowstone fell to the U.S. government. It wasn't clear at first who was in charge either. All sorts of weird issues arose next, like how do we act in a national park? Nobody really knew. Early visitors treated the parks like a glorified playground. Sounds familiar, right? They'd scratch their initials into geysers, they'd wade around in thermal pools, and they'd feed the wildlife from their hands. The situation quickly deteriorated. Trappers were illegally harvesting animals from the land, and bison in particular were almost wiped out completely. In short, it was a mess. The Secretary of the Interior didn't want Yellowstone to be an American embarrassment. But Congress wouldn't appropriate any new funds to maintain the park. So he's in a little bit of a pickle. So just 14 years after the first national park was accidentally created in 1886, he had to send the United States Calvary to Yellowstone to restore order. They chased down the trappers, caught them, and banned them from the park. They found new carvings on geysers and searched through the attending guests until they found the offenders. They would force these guests to disembark from their stagecoaches and remove the markings from the soft surfaces. Disorder, meet order. The army was in charge for 30 years, but they had to endure five harsh winters before Congress appropriated any funds for permanent housing. Ouch. They didn't know it, but the army was the first interest group to implement and enforce a backcountry wilderness ethic in the park. If they hadn't implemented an ethic, Yellowstone may have failed. And if our first national park was a failure, the very idea of future national parks would be incomprehensible. Let's be thankful that never happened. For almost 50 years, the most popular way to Yellowstone was by train. By the 1930s, when there were national parks established in 16 states, most visitors were arriving by car. John Muir, who lobbied for the creation of Yosemite in California, had mixed feelings on cars, calling them useful, progressive, blunt-nosed mechanical beetles. He thought the noise that accompanied them interrupted the commune with nature as guests were supposed to be having. With the deluge of these vehicles came a deluge of people. In 1872, the first year it opened, Yellowstone received about a whopping 300 visitors. By 1914, the year before it allowed cars on the park roads, it received about 20,000. By 1935, 20 years after cars had been roaming our national parks, there were 300,000 people visiting it. The most recent year, in 2018, a record 4.1 million people walked through its gates. That's incredible. I mean, that current number is 10% of the U.S. population back in 1872. And as the amount of visitors has risen over the years in all of our national parks, so has the amount of trash we've generated. Last year, we generated more than 100 million pounds of trash in our national parks. Considering about 318 million people visited, that's about one-third pound of trash per person. If that number seems like a lot, just ponder what we as Americans generated in our entire country. 
minus recycling and composting, last year we all generated 334 billion pounds of trash. That's about 4.4 pounds per person per day and enough to need around a thousand acres of new landfills every year in our country alone. Rather than the sublime views of the snow-covered Tetons or the cavernous depths of the Grand Canyon, the most impressive aspect of our parks is the amount of ketchup-smeared paper plates, empty peanut butter jars, and crushed water bottles we can try to stuff into a trash can before it explodes. Environmentalists saw this coming in the 1960s and 70s and began clamoring for a universal front country and back country ethic in our parks. The most widely adopted one today is known as LNT, or Leave No Trace. There are seven principles of Leave No Trace. Their truthfulness verges on the self-evident. So here they are. Number one, plan ahead and prepare. Number two, travel and camp on durable surfaces. Number three, dispose of waste properly. Number four, leave what you find. Number five, minimize campfire impacts. Number six, respect wildlife. Number seven, be considerate of other visitors. If every visitor followed all these rules perfectly, our national parks would be beautiful places. We wouldn't need trash cans, park rangers, fire brigades, or even slick backcountry ethic programs like LNT. But I believe these ethics have some shortcomings. If you're an avid backpacker, hiker, or just general lover of the outdoors like myself, your initial reaction might be defensive, like, how could these possibly have shortcomings, Austin? If you're like me, you've probably even religiously followed them in the past. To admit the ethics shortcomings feels like a personal indictment. Don't take it harshly. Think of the seven principles of LNT like the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament. They are, in and of themselves, noble, upright, and true. But to think of only the letters of the law can mean missing the spirit of the law. Jesus consistently reprimanded the Pharisees for making this mistake. For instance, the fifth commandment is do not murder. Does that mean if I avoid killing someone intentionally, I've kept the command? No. It wasn't only enough to avoid murder, as Jesus reminded us. He reminded us to keep the spirit of the commandment by saying, quote, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You should not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus reminds us that murder is actually the outward expression of inward hatred, and it really must be that inward hatred that we avoid at all costs. Now, let's jump back to LNT. Even if we planned ahead, never left the trail, didn't produce a single pound of trash in any of our national parks, and right now we produce 100 million, remember, left what we found, never let a campfire grow out of control, respected wildlife, and were considerate of other visitors, we could not stop all the destruction in our national parks. That's because 
we don't live inside a museum. Speaking broadly here, you might have not left any trash in the park, but what happened to all the plastic wrapping you threw away that covered the food when you bought it? L&T encourages the same disconnection we experience elsewhere in our lives. Forgetting trash has to go somewhere, too. We may be following L&T, but are the manufacturers of our food following it? Maybe you feel good about pooping in a little bag and carrying it out of the park. But what about the sewage system back home? Is the sewage system leaving no trace on rivers? This situation gets murky incredibly fast. Though we may not like to admit it, our cities and national parks are dependent on each other. Trash in one place will necessarily end up in the other. Likewise, and this is where the hope is, stewardship in one place will eventually benefit the other place as well. Nature is alive, and so are we. Nature is a vibrant, glowing ecosystem that is interconnected with everything else. I see this on our farm every day. When we downplay our connection to it, we fail to see how our actions in seemingly unrelated parts of the world affect the parts of the world we love most. For instance, Glacier National Park in Montana is quick on its way to becoming Glacier Less National Park. 50 years ago, it had 35 named active glaciers. Now, it has 26. The average glacier has reduced in size by 39%, and some by as much as 85%. All of its glaciers have been shrinking. While the world is striving to contain climate change to 1.5 degrees Celsius, that's about 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, the two counties that contain Glacier National Park have already experienced a 3 degree Fahrenheit warming. It's a warning for what's to come for the rest of us. And so even if LNT ethics were followed perfectly inside the park, the glaciers will continue to shrink. It's nature's way of reminding us that everything is interconnected. Here's another case. In 2017, in Rocky Mountain National Park and all across Colorado, a researcher named Gregory Weatherby was trying to study nitrogen pollution by analyzing rainwater samples. He found plastic instead. Yep, that's right, plastic. He was finding plastic on the tops of mountains. He found it in both remote national parks and nearby urban areas like Boulder. His conclusion? It was raining plastic. Even if LNT were followed perfectly in Rocky Mountain National Park, plastic would still find its way inside. The decision to use non-biodegradable plastics in our textiles and otherwise has polluted the fragile alpine environment in Colorado's mountains. These are just two examples of many possible ones, but I think it's clear that the decisions of the broader global ecosystem affects the local ecosystems we cherish most. We need to focus on following the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law. So I want to offer a new set of guiding ethics. I'm not the author, but I think they're true. David Moskowitz and Darcy Audie offer a different set of seven guiding ethics they call conscious impact living, intentionally designed to replace leave no trace ethics. Neither I nor they think leave no trace are bad. We just think it's time for something else. And I'm going to paraphrase some of their explanations. The seven ethics of conscious impact living are, number one, live simply. 
To live simply is probably the most important. What do I want and what do I need? Traveling in wild places helps clarify this. Number two, think globally and plan ahead. Think about the impacts of your choices on both the local and global ecosystem. Such as, where will this plastic I'm throwing away end up? Number three, follow the precautionary principle. Assume something new will have a negative effect on other creatures until we know otherwise. Think about how DDT ended up killing songbirds in Africa. Number four, reduce, reuse, recycle, and relearn. That's pretty much self-explanatory. Number five, follow nature's lead and blend into your surroundings. Don't stick out like a sore thumb. Number six, use appropriate technology and use technology appropriately. For using appropriate technology during fire season in the backcountry, you should use a mini gas stove instead of a campfire. It's more energy efficient and you don't have to worry about stray sparks. For using technology appropriately, think about light pollution. Just because you can have a free utility pole light shining all hours of the day and night doesn't mean you need to. If you're worried about safety, use a motion sensor. Lastly, show respect and compassion for all forms of life. This is love your neighbor as yourself. These CIL, or Conscious Impact Living Ethics, improve on LNT, or Leave No Trace Ethics, by connecting our metropolitan and wilderness lives. CIL reminds us how choices we make in the comfort of our own homes affect wild places far away. Rather than buying all your food for your next hiking trip from the store, plant a garden in your backyard. Learn how to preserve fruits and vegetables. Then, not only will your hiking trips become more sustainable, but your day-to-day living will as well. If we're honest with ourselves, we will admit most of our lives aren't spent in the backcountry, even if we wish it were that way. We spend most of our lives nearby or living inside cities. And if we really want to make a positive impact on our environment, living sustainably day-to-day in our metropolitan lives will yield a bigger impact. So rather than leaving no trace, I implore and beg you to leave a trace. Acknowledge the part that you play in the global ecosystem and live your city slash front country slash back country life sustainably and regeneratively. Leave a trace in the best possible way. Heal the world. So lunatics, I'm really interested in what you all think of this episode. Email me any thoughts or questions. See you again in two weeks. Woof! Ma! Moo! Which one are you? I created lots of extra content for you on my Patreon page if you want a deeper dive into my life and the world of regenerative agriculture. I need your support to keep doing this. Depending on how much you want to give, you might either be a brood of hens, guard pups, a flock of sheep, or a herd of cows. Personally, I'm a sticker fanatic. I have a Hydro Flask water bottle on display in my home covered with about 100 stickers from every corner of Colorado. It's one of my most prized possessions. I created a special offer for my fellow sticker fanatics where you'll get a high quality sticker of the podcast logo in the mail if you pledge your support to me on Patreon. 
put it on your water bottle, the back windshield, your laptop, a guitar case, or a street light if you're really feeling gutsy. I know it's only taken like six months for me to get it together, but it's been kind of busy here. My dairy cows definitely consumed most of my day, and I just recently dried them off. I have so much time, I barely know what to do with myself. This podcast isn't a super slick production. It's just me in a dark basement in the wee hours of the morning. I need your financial support to keep producing this. If this show means anything to you, if you find some value in it, please consider donating. However you came to find this podcast, your support, any support would be greatly appreciated. If you have any questions or thoughts about this episode or want to sponsor a future one, shoot me an email to austin at letthemeatgrass.org. I might even include your question along with my answer at the end of my next episode. If you thoroughly enjoyed this podcast, subscribe or download it on whatever podcast directory you use. If you're using iTunes and are feeling mighty generous for the next five minutes of your life, please rate it and leave a review. The more reviews I get, the better my chances of being featured in a spotlight. And as self-serving as that sounds, the more attention this podcast gets means that I get to improve the production quality for you. Production assistance was provided by the kissable Kelly Williams. That's my wife. Music was performed by the bodacious Brandon Nelson. If you like Scandinavian folk music, you can find his album Old Yarns by Eloin. That's E-L-O-I-G-N at Bandcamp. Cover art was drawn by the radical Rebecca Rabin. And sound engineering was done by the jubilant Jeffrey Hook. If you want any of these marvelous people to help you with your projects, just let me know. That's all I have for now. Stay with me, won't you?